Well, good morning, Grace Point. It's great to be with you again. It's been, a, I think, a year or so since I've been here to, to preach. Uh, as you probably know, we're working through a series, or you're working through a series on various topics, thinking particularly about some ethical issues. Uh, and uh, I'm speaking today on facing death in the age of choice. Now, particularly in case you don't know who I am, John McLean is my name. I actually teach here at uh, Christ College, uh, and ethics is one of the areas that I teach. I also have the privilege of chairing a committee for the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales called Gospel Society and Culture, uh, and it really does, it tries to equip the church in the, again in these areas of ethics uh, and public policy as well as apologetics. Uh, so I'd encourage you to check out the website and I've got actually on the outline a few references uh, of some stuff we've produced that might help you think a bit further. Uh, and I should say, so Lucy sitting down the back is on the committee, so if you want to find out more about the committee, uh, chat to her as well as chat to me. So although this is a topical sermon and I'm not going to be um, unpacking a whole passage of scripture, uh, as you'll see it's clearly we, we want to draw from the Bible as we seek to apply it to, uh, to, to our lives here. So let's pray and ask God for his help. Lord God, we come now to hear your word by your spirit Fill us with your light that we might trust the Lord Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and follow him faithfully in life and in death. Amen. My little sister, Anne, was her name. She was 36 years old, three kids. Uh, she just moved to Adelaide to start a job lecturing at Adelaide University. And uh, one evening in January 2011, I got a phone call from her husband, Chris, to say that she'd had some seizures. And within a week or so, she'd been diagnosed with a brain tumour. It was a secondary from a melanoma that she'd had removed when she was a teenager. And for her and for her immediate family and for our whole family, that was the start of a roller coaster ride of diagnosis and then surgery and then chemo and then radiotherapy. Months of hope, but also long grief. Terrible side effects for her, but also great moments of peace and joy until finally, about two years later, she went to be with her Lord. And through that period, we had to face up to the fact that her life and her death and our lives and our death are in God's hands. Certainly, Anne and Chris, her husband, had to come to terms with that. So did the rest of us. And we moved at different rates. So one week, she'd be feeling defeated and we'd be trying to encourage her but then the next week she'd have a settled calm about what she was facing and we drew from her strength as a family we had to move from 
you know, we were a Christian family. We were, my, my father and stepmother and um, four, my, myself and three siblings, we were all believers. But we had to move from, in theory, saying her life is in God's hands to actually living that out and entrusting her to God and loving her through that. And so that's the topic that I want to talk about this morning, um, life and death, especially death. Uh, And it is a heavy topic, and for some of you, no doubt it will be personal and immediately personal. What I want to do is outline a biblical view of death and life. Think about what does it mean to know that life is in God's hands and what implications does that have for end-of-life care? So I do want to say a little bit about policy questions about voluntary-assisted dying and I will say a little bit about kind of clinical care, although I'm sure there are people here, doctors and nurses here, who know far more about that and can give you far more detail uh, than I can. But really what I want to focus on are the big spiritual questions for us personally and for us as a church. So one of the big differences between the Christian view of life and death and the fairly common Australian view is that Christians believe that God rules over life and death. Whereas Most Australians at some level think that we can and should be in charge of it. I mean, so Aussies might talk about fate and, 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 you know, there's there's some sense of death is part of my fate, but we also want to avoid that fate as much as we can and we we figure that we're likely to be able to beat death at least for a while. You know, so when someone gets a serious diagnosis, a cancer or something like that, so often their response is, I'm going to fight this, I'm not going to give in, we're going to overcome that. And it's, it's no surprise in some ways that that's the way Australians often think. Uh, because over the last few generations, our life expectancy has just gone up so much. Uh, quite amazing, really. Back in the beginning of the 20th, of the 20th century, um, life expect- expectancy in Australia was under 60, so 56 years of age for men and 59 years of age for women. In, 223, in 2023, our male, male life expectancy is 81 female life expectancy over 85. Uh, And so we've seen the kind of picture of death in our culture change dramatically. It's far less obvious. One of the reasons for those, or that change in life expectancy, is a massive reduction in infant mortality. About a 90% reduction in infant mortality. Um, So at the beginning of the 20th century, if you had a child, the chances of that child dying in the first few years of life were quite high. Now, chances are very low. 
our diets are healthier, our drugs are better, our doctors and hospitals are better equipped, we've got our workplaces are safer. There's a whole lot of things that means we just live for longer. And so we start to feel that life and death is in our hands, that we control it. So when you're sick, even if you're very sick, you expect that there'll be tests that will diagnose you and there'll be a treatment for you, um, that the doctor will be able to tell you what's going on and why. Often that you'll be treated in a way that will cure you or at least there'll be good treatment. And so there's this myth in our society, and it is a, it's a kind of myth, it's a sort of controlling story, that in one way nobody says entirely out loud, but it sits in the background and it directs our hopes and our actions. And the story, it's, it's that we write our own story, even at the point of death. We've got freedom to decide when we die, and we've got a technical ability to control the time of our death. I mean, no one quite says you don't have to die, because obviously that's not true, but we often live as if we're not going to die. So whereas in the past people lived with the presence of death, for most of us, death is rarely a kind of active presence in our life. You know, when someone's dying, we often have them, almost always have them off in hospital. And there's this kind of void in our culture where we just don't think much about death. And I think all of this drives the desire for legalised euthanasia, voluntary assisted dying, which is in the process of coming in in New South Wales at present. You know, we know a lot more about disease. And when someone's in the last stages of a disease, often there's a relatively accurate prognosis about how the person will die and what that course is going to be. On the other side, we've got medical techniques that keep people alive at points where in the past they would have died quite quickly. We often can control the symptoms and the pain of disease. And we can't think of anything worse than a painful and undignified death. And all of that adds up to the idea that obviously we should control pain and death and individuals should have a right to determine when they die. So a few years ago when David Goodall, an Australian scientist who lived, uh, I think he was into his 90s or maybe even into his 100s, into his 90s I think, and he decided that he'd just reached the point where he wanted to end his own life and he went to Switzerland to do that. Lots of people saw that as reasonable and courageous. You know, why not end life peacefully when you've had enough. And what all of that raises for us is a big spiritual question of who is really in control of life and death. And as Warren was reminding the kids this morning, life is God's gift. It's God who took, uh, in, in Genesis 2, took the dust and breathed life into it. God gives us life and Christians recognise that God chooses when he will take life from us as well. 
He chooses when life comes to an end. Now, that doesn't mean there's no place for medical care. I'll say a little bit more about that in a, in a few minutes. But while our culture emphasises choice and freedom and control, even of death, the truth is we don't actually have that much say about it. The truth is we all live under the shadow of death. And to think that we have the right and the power to determine when and how we die actually ends up being a fantasy. So God rules over life and death. And God says, very clearly, he puts strong limitations and protections around human life. So he says in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, do not murder, which means don't take human life. Uh, why not? Well, you find that explained in lots of parts of the Bible. Genesis 9, for instance, God tells Noah, people have been made in God's image. There's something particularly special and sacred about human life. And so you're not to take human life. Murder is wrong. Uh, God doesn't put the same limit around animal life. He doesn't stop us cutting down trees or uh, eating food, eating plants and animals for food. Uh, But every person is made in God's image and their life is valuable to God. He protects it. Uh, And one of the great truths about that, one of the great implications of that truth is that that's true about every person's life. It's not just that the rich and the strong and the male and the white and the able-bodied, that their lives matter, but that every human life is valuable and God protects it. And we often summarise that by talking about the phrase, the sanctity of human life, that human life is specially preserved by God, He determines in his providence when we're born and he determines in his providence and by his law when we die and we're not free to to take that. Of course, there are exceptions in the Bible. We need to recognise that. The Bible does recognise the necessary evils of war and even talks about capital punishment. But the point is they are exceptions in very special circumstances of the overall principle of the sanctity of human life. So where voluntary assisted dying is often promoted with, that, with phrases like this, my, cho- my life, my choice, I think there are two angles uh, which Christians should recognise, that should help Christians recognise that's not the, it's not the case. It's not my life, my choice. One is that God in his providence determines when we live and when we die, It's not in our control. We don't choose it. But then there's this moral limitation as well that God guards and protects human life. It's not ours to take. And so we can't choose to end human life, even our own. Now, certainly with voluntary assisted dying legislation, there's a a risk that the particular victims will be people who are vulnerable. Uh, that will start. That at least some people in our society will start to get the message that they are not, their lives are not valuable, and they should be, their lives should be finished. 
so there's all sorts of risks that come with voluntary assisted dying legislation. But even if we think that we're, and we are freely choosing to take our own lives because we don't think they're worth living, because they're too burdensome for us, that's not a human preference that God gives us the freedom to have. Um, God says, do not murder. He protects human life. It's always precious and protected by him. Third, God cares about his creatures, especially his human creatures. That's what I'm saying when we talk about the sanctity of life. And one of the things that God does is that he heals. In Exodus 15, God says to Israel, I am the Lord who heals you. And of course, we see that so much in Jesus' ministry. We read one example of it in Mark 5 this morning. One episode, which is really two episodes of the little girl who's dying and ultimately dies, and the the woman who's bleeding. And in both cases, Jesus heals and restores to life. And that reflects God's character. God's character is to heal and cure and restore. God hates the wounds and the weeping of this world. And he's committed to fixing things up in the new creation. God says there'll be no more death. He will overcome death. God's kingdom will be a kingdom of healing and life. And it's important to make that point because we need to see a Christian objection to voluntary assisted dying or physician-assisted suicide is not just about fatalism. So I actually sometimes hear Christians say something like this, well, God rules over life and death, so we just leave it up to him. If God gives life or, whether he take, or if he takes it, we just accept it and that's all. Now, at one level, that is true. That's what I've just been saying. We submit to God's direction. We don't have final control. But that isn't all that Christianity says about life and death. Because God loves life and he hates death. And so while Christians know from the Bible that we shouldn't take human life, we are committed to healing. And we imitate God when we do that. And so Christians have always known healing was important. I mean, I guess you can't follow Jesus and not recognise that because he did so much of that. Christians were really the first to offer medical care to the the poor, not just to the rich who could pay for it. Uh, Modern hospitals are the outcome of a long tradition of Christian medical care. Back in the early church... uh, In each city where the bishops set up their home, their house, part of that house was set apart for caring for the sick and the dying, especially for those who couldn't couldn't afford to care for themselves. So Christians recognise that every person and every life matters and is worth caring for. So when we're sick, we don't just say, well, this is God's will and I have to bear it. That's one thing to say. But we also rightly should look, can look for and should look for relief, even look for a cure if that's possible. And so 
The argument against voluntary sister dying for Christians is not about fatalism. It's not just accepting whatever happens in life. The Christian view is life-affirming. And that traditional Christian view has been reflected in medical ethics of saying human life is precious, it should be protected, and we should aim to heal. A fourth thing to recognise is that Christians have got a different view of death because of Jesus' resurrection. For most Australians, their view of death is, or for many Australians, death is the end, there's kind of nothing more, or at least if there's anything beyond death, it's very vague and unknown. So, you know, there's some people who just say, well, when you're dead, you're dead, that's it. But about a half, Australia, half of Australians do think there's some sort of life after death. Another quarter of Australians wonder whether there's life after death. We're certainly not all materialists. But, but for most Australians, whatever lies beyond death, you know, death is this impenetrable curtain that you cannot know what's beyond there really, even if you have some vague hope that there's more. Uh, but God tells us in the Bible both where death comes from and, that, and about life after death. We, we die because as a human race we've turned away from God. And God says to Adam, because of your sin, you're made from dust and you'll return to dust. Uh, we're made to live and to live for God and to live with him. But because of Adam's sin and because of our sin, we don't. Our days are numbered and we're heading to the grave. And we should see then that death is terrible. It, it, it's really at the heart of the human tragedy. We're not made for death. We're made to live and human death is a sign that things have gone terribly wrong in our world. That's why Jesus wept when he stood at Lazarus' grave. Right? He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He'd already told his disciples that was going to happen. And yet confronted with the reality of human death and the grief that brings, Jesus wept. When someone dies or when we face our own death, it should be awful. Uh, this is really neatly summarised by this little poem by Bruce Smith, who is an, was an Australian poet, uh, a Christian poet in Sydney. He wrote these words, Death's no friend, whatever mask it wears. It breaks our fragile worlds apart and in the heart of each of us, plants grief and fear. The Christians are not pro-death. We don't embrace it or celebrate it. But we know that Jesus' resurrection has transformed death. He's borne the curse of death for us and overcome it. Because he's been raised and is alive forevermore. In the book of Revelation, you, know, you might remember Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead 
And now, look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And so Jesus changes death for us. It doesn't make death good. Death in itself is still no friend. But Jesus has turned that enemy of death into a door to eternal life. It's a very God thing to do, to take the great human tragedy of death because of sin and overcome it so that now for those who trust in Jesus, those who are in Christ, that that tragedy actually brings us into eternal life with Christ. And so that too shapes the way in which Christians look at life and dying and death. So how do we follow Jesus in life and in death? As I said, everyone around us is an image bearer. Everyone's life is valuable. It deserves respect. How do we respond to that, especially in the face of death? Well, the first point I think is that we should care. Uh, We see that in Jesus. Jesus met so many sick people. Consistently, he cares for them. Uh, Clearly, people who are sick matter to Jesus. Uh, his His ministry is really busy, and yet consistently he makes time for those who are sick. I see it in Mark 5. There's a great crowd after him. But even though there's a great crowd chasing after him, he's willing to go to see Jairus' daughter. Uh, and and you know, we live in a culture in, in our society where we think kids are really important. But in Jesus' day, life did not revolve around children the way it does in our, in our culture. And, and children getting sick and dying was really common in Jesus' day. And yet... You know, when Jesus is told about this little girl who's sick, he's ready to put things in hold and sort of leave the crowd or have the crowd follow him and go and see her. But then along the way, he's touched by this woman who's bleeding. She's an outcast. She's unclean because of her bleeding. She's not a high-status person. She obviously needs care, and Jesus heals her and takes time to talk to her and assure her that her faith has, has healed her. And what Jesus does here sets the pattern for Christians. People are made in God's image and they're not to be thrown on the scrap heap. Now, of course, there's lots of care that happens in our culture and we should be really glad of that and lots of caring people who are not Christians. But we also do need to recognise that in our culture at present... Care for everyone, even the weak and the vulnerable, is being undermined. There's certainly an instinct that generally is in our culture that people should be cared for, but because we've lost sight of the reason for that, because we don't generally recognise that people are made in God's image and that God protects human life, uh, we're moving towards more and more assessing human life in economic terms. Uh, Some of that's because we more and more operate on a user-pays system. 
I mean, even in Australia with public medical care, uh, the, the cost of medical care is increasing and so there's economic pressures and you only need to look at the US medical system to see uh, one which is even more divided according to you get good care if you can pay for it, you don't get good care if you can't. People do ask whether the financial burden of caring for the elderly and for children with disabilities is really worth it. And at a, you know, that comes true at a personal level as well. The demands of work, of paying the mortgage, of keeping up a lifestyle, means often we're likely to put elderly people into a nursing home rather than care for them at home. Because caring for the sick and the dying is hard work. It's messy and it's slow and it costs us time. And even visiting someone in hospital or caring for a sick neighbour or certainly spending years nursing uh, elderly parents, often we just don't see how we can fit that into our lifestyle. And so it's tempting to echo our society and say, we don't have time and money to do this. It's too expensive. It interrupts our lifestyles. But if we follow Jesus, then caring for the sick has to be a priority. Uh, That's why I thought it was great this morning that um, Ray, when he was leading us in prayer, led us to pray for those who are sick and dying. Now, people who are sick and dying are often very lonely. And Christian community should be a place where we're aware of that and we make time for it. Now, I, I, I don't want to put you onto a guilt trip here. Um, not saying you know, putting parents or grandparents into a nursing home is always the wrong thing to do. Um, of course, there's, there's, there's appropriate times to do that. But we do need to be countercultural and see that caring for the sick and especially for the dying really is worth doing. And, you know, sometimes in churches we even will think, oh, well, you know, care for the elderly, that's not a very strategic ministry. It'd be more strategic to invest in young people. But the Christian vision of life and death should turn us to care for those who are dying. And secondly, we need to face death together as God's people. Knowing it's not the worst thing that can happen, but recognising that death is the tragic result of human sin, that it's an enemy, though a defeated enemy. As I said, we live in a society that generally tries to avoid death and avoid thinking about it. Uh, sort of dream Australian death is to have a heart attack on the golf course, right? Where you don't even, you don't know it's going to happen and you're just having fun and then it happens and that's it. But, but Christians know that actually we should be thinking about death and thinking about our own death. Uh, living in a state of denial of death uh, is foolish and unhealthy, and that's why I think it's good to have a sermon like this today, 
to think about death, to see how the gospel prepares us for it. Uh, our Jess and C committee has produced a Bible study discussion on death. It's pretty confronting to sit in a small group on a Wednesday evening or whatever it is and to talk about death and dying. But we should be doing that because the gospel is a message about life and about death. And so those discussions should be part of our Christian fellowship. Uh, Carl Truman, the pretty well-known Christian commentator, has recently written this. He said, The church is certainly to help people to live, but to live in the shadow of mortality. She must set this earthly realm in the greater context of eternity. She's to prepare people through her preaching, her liturgy, her psalmody and her sacraments to realise that death is, yes, a terrible, terrifying reality we must all one day, someday face. But that the suffering of this world, or indeed this passing superficial prosperity many of us enjoy, are but light and momentary ephemera compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. We need to be thinking about our lives in the light of death and the hope of resurrection and doing that together. And that becomes very practical when people are dying. Um, as I said, facing death is often a very lonely experience. And people who are facing death need people around them to laugh and cry and talk and pray. And it turns out it's good for us to be there with them as well when we're the ones who are seeking to care and support. Because we learn from Christians facing death about our own life and death as well. Adolphe Minaud was a French pastor in the 19th century and he died a long and painful death from liver cancer. In the last six months of his life, each Sunday, he, a small group of his friends gathered around his bed and they shared communion and he preached from, to them from his bed. And those sermons have been published as his farewell. And in, that, in those sermons, he contemplates his suffering and death and how that could be a blessing to others. How Christians share in Christ's suffering as a sign that they belong to Christ. Uh, how Christ's suffering comforts him in his suffering. And each week as his friends stood around his bed and he taught them, he taught them in the words he spoke, but also in the way in which he faced death. And I think our church life should actually be like that group of friends gathered around Mono's bed. That we're a community where people die. And they die among us teaching us and encouraging us as they do. So that death in Christ and resurrection hope is lived out in the church. Well, let me say something just very briefly about the issues of ending life. Uh, first of all, we need to be committed to the sanctity of life. 
in a culture where an easy death seems like a good option, we need to say life is worth preserving, especially for those people for whom receiving an easy death will often seem uh, easier for our society, the weak and the vulnerable. Uh, We should try to relieve pain. Uh, There's lots of good medical care nowadays that does. Uh, We're blessed with very effective palliative care and Christians should access that uh, if at all possible when they're facing death. And being committed to life doesn't mean doing everything we possibly can to keep someone alive. Uh, I think Christians perhaps sometimes slip into that. It's certainly that can be a temptation for medical staff, that they've got the equipment and the skills to keep people alive for a long time and there can be pressure from families and sometimes even from the person to do that. Uh, But there are times when it's appropriate to accept that death is coming and, and allow it to come rather than seeking to extend a painful life. But that's very different, accepting that death is coming and allowing it to come is very different to ending someone's life. But that's a distinction that you need to think about because sometimes Christians, I do notice, because they've been told that voluntary assisted dying is wrong, they feel like they therefore should insist that we do everything we can to keep someone alive. Uh, But there's a big difference between allowing someone to die and taking their life. In fact, it's cruel sometimes to prolong life needlessly. But I think the bigger point from this morning is that preparing to die well is a lifelong task. And this is something that Christians have, in the past, have recognised. Back in the 15th century, a Dominican friar uh, wrote a book, Ars Morendi, The Art of Dying. Uh, and uh, since then, over the next couple of centuries, lots of Christians wrote books about how to die well. Uh, so Jeremy Taylor, a, a Puritan, wrote a book, Holy Living, Holy Dying, which talked about how a good death completes a good life and a good life should be lived aware of our mortality and the promise of the resurrection. But I'm not sure many Christians nowadays are writing books about how to die well. I want to finish by reading a poem by John Donne, the 17th century English preacher and poet. This is a poem he wrote as he was facing his own death. And you can see it's a prayer to God. He says, Since I am coming to that holy room where with thy choir of saints forevermore I shall be made thy music. As I come, I tune the instrument at the door. And what I must do then, think here before. And That's how you live when you know that you will die in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word addresses so fully and directly the reality of death, uh, 
But especially we thank you that Jesus died for us and has risen again and has conquered death. That those who trust him can be sure that we live for him now and to die is gain. And so, Father, we pray that in a world that avoids death, but also thinks that we should be in charge of it, you'll help us to learn what it means to trust you. Not only for ourselves, but for others. And, And to care for those around us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.